Welcome to The Bread Project. Bread is the classic carbohydrate of civilization and the spiritual metaphor for the richness of our human experience on Earth. Yet the breads we buy in the modern supermarket are only a superficial impersonation of the breads of bygone days. Indeed, the bread you put in your shopping cart or buy from a local baker might be making you sick in ways you never even suspected. So what happened? And what needs to happen next? In The Bread Project, we're asking the question, in an age in which every carbohydrate is positioned as pure dietary evil, where chemical contamination of our food is endemic, and in which our food systems are industrialized beyond all natural reason, is there really a redemption story for bread? I'm Melody Patterson Meta, and, and this is Reinventing the Supermarket. discussion for the Bread Project, I'm welcoming one of the world's great eco-activists, Simran Sethi. Simran recently launched her superb book, Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love. The book itself is a delectable voyage into our relationships with some of our most beloved and ancient foods, and it provides a sober warning as to what's at stake with the industrialization of the systems that now provide most of them. The emotional centre of the story, in my opinion, is Simran's journey to explore her own deep connection to traditional breads and how they help shape our personal and cultural identities and our sense of place. We'll discuss the issue of bread in an industrialised market and how a slavish consistency of product taste and formulation is at odds with the ebb and flow of nature, the seasons and the flavours of the earth. And while large food corporations and marketers value sameness as the foundation of brand performance, is it possible that this sought-after commercial attribute is undermining our long-term food security? So let's go. My recent chat with Simran Sethi, the value of diversity in our foods and food traditions, the vulnerability of global food systems, bowing before the false god called yield, and can we really mass-produce a staple like bread and still maintain our cultures, traditions and health in this episode called Breaking Bread? Simran, I want to welcome you and tell you it's a great honour to have this discussion with you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Simran, this is a, a conversation in which I hope we'll be able to lay out a kind of a basic framework for uh, the bread project. What I'd like to do is just unpack a little bit of what we think bread is all about, what it really means to us, and what the big issues are around bread, uh, particularly the bread that we are buying in the supermarket today and its relationship to bread in history. I'm interested right off the bat to hear where you think or where you feel we might start on that. You know, I think for me, it's so interesting what you touched upon at the start of the conversation, which is this notion that bread is who we are. And, you know, from my research, I, I wrote this book about the loss of biodiversity in foods and spent 
six years, uh, five years, excuse me, on six continents, including beloved Australia, doing this work and realizing that um, the story of agriculture was the story of us. And it's something that we have such power and agency in. And for me, learning, you know, really more about agriculture was created for, you know, depending on which researcher you're talking to, the soupy, uh, bready, beer-ish mixture that kind of sustained us and fueled our days. And um, thinking that is what we, that is what we sowed grain for, was to create bread, was to create beer, was to nourish ourselves. And as you so, you know, beautifully put it, to to take that stuff out of our daily bread, to remove um, so many of the things that make it nutritious, to sow fields full of monocultures of wheat that, you know, is high yielding, but perhaps not delicious, not terribly nutritious, is a real reflection of what it is that we value. So I think the first thing to kind of recognize is that uh, bread is a nutritional staple. It's something that brings us much joy, but it's also a spiritual staple that speaks to, in you know, so many faith traditions, who we are. Yes, certainly it appears to me, and certainly after reading your book, bread is clearly a, a food that feeds and nourishes not just our, our bodies, but our souls as well. And I, I do think that goes back to this root of civilization and it's obviously a beer crossed with bread that we started out with in life. It, maybe it's a toss-up between whether bread is the oldest food or beer. Right. <laughs> Which is hilarious. So maybe I could have done the beer project first. You know, maybe maybe there's still room for both. <laughs> but I do feel that the bread project was the most important one to start with for the very thing reason you're talking about and that is that bread is it is uh, the metaphor for our very civilization and when we remove the nutrition from it we remove the nutrition from our souls when we fake the bread which is really in my opinion very much what sits on supermarket shelves today is a is a, a holographic impersonation of what the original bread used to be, uh, then that becomes uh, amplified through our lives because of the yeah. bread that we're eating. I think it comes at great human cost, not just at, at nutritional and health cost. Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. I think, and that's the thing that was most extraordinary to me in this work is that recognition that the people so committed to transforming bread were really committed to returning to a society in which we recognized and honored origins, in which we you know, celebrated place, in which we honored the hands that, that go into making the foods that we love, that go into sowing the grains and fields, that go into nourishing us. And it was rather, rather than sort of um, simply an appreciation of bread. It was an appreciation of meditation and community and the earth. And, and that to me has been the greatest joy of this book is discovering it was about the loss of biodiversity and food, you know, this genetic erosion, but really it was about an exploration of cultural loss of cultural erosion and of a return to cultural diversity and a return to the self. Well, one of the things that really jumped out at me when I was reading your book, uh, was the um, word consistency. The reason that jumped out so strongly 
for me is because as a as a brand strategist, the word consistency is one of the very important things that I talk about. It's a part of the work that I've done for almost all of my life, it seems. When I enter a room to discuss brand with people, uh, invariably, there if there's 10 people in the room, there'll be 10 different ideas about what a brand is. So the very first thing I do with, with new people is I define what a brand is. And the definition I give them is that a, a brand is something that has consistency of performance. It's a re relationship based on consistency of performance over a period of time. And so when I saw the word consistency popping up in your book, I had this enormous aha moment, which was, oh, my God, it's this is the, the thing that we have done to bread and to food is we have imposed this this mechanistic reductionism of the the civilization that we've created we've imposed this 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 standardization on everything in order to create consistency and obviously this is this this has roots going all the way back to the industrial revolution which i think is when we started to lose that connection with the earth as human beings we started to lose that personal connection with the with the the soil and the plants and the the food that we do with the hours of the day the movement of the sun all of that started to be lost I think you're absolutely right. And I think that begs such an interesting question. When we talk about the consistency of brand, when we talk about, you know, I mean, we this this uh, industrialization, this duplication, this mechanization has happened in everything, in our clothing, in our mobile phones, in our foods. You know, you go anywhere in the world and you find, a you know, a McDonald's. I mean, and that there's something uh, very safe about thinking you can get out of your comfort zone, but still find what is familiar, you know? And I think there, there is a balance point between these two places that seems we've gone so overboard in everything kind of moving toward the cookie cutter sameness that we're losing a really critical part of what it means to be human and what it means to feel aliveness. And I talk about this in the book about when I looked at the biodiversity in the wild, I talked about how it related to embracing the wildness in myself and the serendipity within myself. And, you know, when we force something like wheat to be the same, to taste the same, to look the same season after season, when we know that anything that is growing and exposed to the elements is naturally or should certainly reflect the experiences that it's having, you know, you, you, you know, if we have a, a, a drought or a hurricane or a, you know, um, we're growing something and putting pesticide or fertilizers on it versus not, you know, if we're growing it in one climate versus the other, these things shouldn't be the same. But what we've done through industrialization is really taken away all those hands and all those places. We've made them, as I talk about in the book, fungible, you know, so wheat has now become a commodity rather than something that is to be cherished for its uniqueness. Isn't it interesting that when wheat becomes a commodity, so does humanity. It followed suit. We, we turned wheat into a commodity and we have turned human life into a commodity yes. at the same time. You introduced beautifully, I think, the notion of terroir, 
which I, I think I'd love to have you explain a little bit for people who are listening who, who may not be uh, familiar with that as a word that comes from the, from the world of wine. Indeed, it comes from the French. And, you know, really, it's, it's about the taste of place, but place in a very multifaceted way. The notion that, you know, I, I want to go back for a moment to what you said about brand. If we, if we replace the, ter- the word brand with the word story, who are we? What do we want to be? What do we want our stories to be? Do they want, do we want to embrace the diversity of those stories? Do we want to have our stories reflect where we're from and the long traditions that we belong to? And sometimes the answer is yes, you know, and sometimes the answer might be no. But I think, you know, the beautiful thing is that, that we have the opportunity to have both. And, you know, at this point, we see that one is really eclipsing the other, that standardization, you know, that industrialization was meant to modernize. It was meant to feed the world. The Green Revolution, which is where a lot of this had its starts in agriculture, was really about creating high yielding varieties of wheat and rice in order to feed starving people. That is an incredibly noble act. However, what happened was it all of a sudden became yield being king or queen over everything. So now we live in an era where more people are, I love the way author Raj Patel says this, he says we're stuffed and starved. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, now more people are facing, you know, health challenges and dying due to, you know, diseases and and health conditions related to being overweight or obese rather than being underweight. But the irony is everyone is still malnourished because the kinds of foods, the hyper-processed convenience foods that are now, you know, deemed cheapest and least expensive because oftentimes because of trade agreements, oftentimes because they're the poorest quality, but again, they may have had the highest yield, um, that, well, then it, that it's a real race to the bottom. And it's not one that just depletes us nutritionally, it depletes us culturally. It's exactly what you said, you know, about turning humanity into a commodity, commodity the commoditization of bodies, of women, of workers, you know, as merely widgets that are just performing one task repetitively. Like we've we, we take away people's agency and creativity and spirit when we choose to live this kind of life exclusively. I couldn't agree more. I think the word, the, the phrase human resources is very interesting. When we created a thing called human resources so that when you go looking for a job, that's how you're pigeonholed. You're merely a resource to be used. It's actually quite frightening. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we created this, you know, and what that means is we can uncreate it. You know, we can. And I think it's happening. We see what's happening with the sharing economy. I mean, imagine, you know, we used to be obsessed and, you know, we're both old enough to to remember this where we all, you know, you would own a vehicle, you would have a car, you would, there was never this thing about Uber. I mean, who would have thought we would get into cars with strangers and like it, you know, and, you know, I mean, this is, you know, who would have thought we would we would seek to share things with each other that we once deemed to be exclusive? I mean, I remember, you know, I, I used to own a house in the Midwest in the United States and our community, we would share together in that neighborhood in East Lawrence, things like gardening tools, because really we didn't, no one was mowing their lawns every day, you know, but yet everyone had lawnmower. And then all of a sudden we realized, 
oh my gosh, we don't actually all need one. And and these kinds of things, these ways of sharing with each you know with each other, these ways of funding creative projects through things like Indiegogo and Kickstarter, there is just such an abundance of opportunity to shift our financial system, to shift the way we the way we work, the way we treat each other and the way we communicate and engage with the world and you know, of course, embedded in that is the way we eat. I totally agree. I want to pick up on the word that you used, which was yield, because yield is a word that has kind of infected our entire society at every level. Everybody is, not everybody, It's that's a general statement, but across society, we seem to be looking for more and more yield from everything we do. And the people who have encountered that for the longest, I think, um, probably apart from the, the banking industry, are the farmers. Back in the 1980s, when I was a young copywriter here in Australia, I wrote a lot of copy for communications going into the wheat industry. And I was on a very steep learning curve in those days about what, <laughs> about what, yeah. what, was, what were the key messages that needed to be gotten across to the wheat industry. And it was referred to as an industry. And the big story was yield, 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 yield. And, of course, I was writing copy for uh, chemical and fertilizer companies who were selling in, very big companies who were selling into the enormous Australian wheat market. And basically that's what we were selling. We were selling high yield and we were selling high gluten content because the gluten content of wheat increased the value of it as a commodity. So we now see an enormous number of people who, although they're not classified as officially as celiac, they certainly have some kind of gluten sensitivity. And I wonder if in part that's because we've busily been pumping up the gluten content in the wheat, creating these strange hybrids where a, where a, a, a part, a natural part of the wheat, which is the gluten, is being pumped up unnaturally just in order to increase the, whether the, the yield of the crop or the financial yield at the end of the day. Exactly. And I think it's so powerful. I, I honestly, I felt my shoulders slump a bit when you said, you know, this higher yield in everything we do. And I think about this epidemic we now have globally of sleep deprivation. And I think about, you know, I say with some remorse that I'm talking to you, it's morning for you. It's evening nearly for me. It's 4.36 in the evening. I've, I've not yet had a proper meal. I've been running around all day. And that that notion of depleting our natural resources, everything that we're doing to our environment, we are also doing to ourselves. And without a real replenishing, renewing, and honoring of our inner resources, as well as those around us, I think we're not going to be able to see that change. The schism between trying to live in the world sustainably, but yet depleting your inner resources is in conflict. I love that. I love that because basically we are a fractal of the earth and when we look at the earth around us she has become so depleted and obviously with the activities that we've created that have depleted this beautiful planet 
as as the fractals that we are, we had to become depleted as a result. So yeah. we've embedded it directly into our systems. I'm very interested in the in the way that crops have become so genetically uniform. I do think it's a threat to the future of humanity that crops are as uniform as they are. If if they get hit by a disease at some point in the future, what happens? Well, it depends on how they're grown. So if we grow everything in monoculture, then we know that it's incredibly vulnerable. And that's increasingly what we are doing. The world has moved toward what researchers who analyzed 50 years of data on what 98% of the world eats to what they call the global standard diet, which is essentially wheat, rice, corn, soya bean, and palm oil. But the challenge is it's the same types and the same amounts. So we'll see um, maybe a lot of diversity on the local level, but this global trend towards sameness, towards consistency, towards standardization is one that puts us in an absolutely perilous situation. Like you said, one disease, one pest, the volatility of climate change, we don't know exactly what's coming, can absolutely wipe these crops out. And we're seeing it happening. You know, we're seeing it happening right now. And it's like a domino effect. And I think, you know, when you look at a place like Australia, there's so much biodiversity there. It's it, I understand from an industrial perspective how it would make sense. You want to be able to irrigate everything, you know, treat everything with whatever input you're putting on it at the same time. But the cost is very high to our health, to the future of food, to our stories, to the culture around what it is that we grow. And, you know, I'm so heartened by the efforts that I see around fermentation, you know, around hot bread kitchen is doing some things with beautiful heritage grains and outside of Melbourne. I mean, there's just incredible efforts everywhere to reclaim our story through the foods that we eat and, and particularly through bread to recognize that this is how we nourish each other and sustain each other. And so to explore different ways of doing so is really to explore different ways of being. It, it really is. I would like to just outline quickly what the main aspects of bread are. Uh, I do see that from your, from your writing, you really broke it down into this beautiful trinity of the farmer, the miller, and the baker. I yes. Absolutely and you know, adored that. And how they bring about terroir. Ah, absolutely. Exactly. And, you know, it's so brilliant. I, I can't take credit for that. I just, it's a whole community of people that are inspiring me. Terroir, that sense of place, that taste of place is not just the microclimates. It's not just the soil, but these things are critical. It's the hands that nurture these things. And what I've found, you know, the reason we often talk about the terroir of wine is that traditionally wine and the, the, the wine growers and the makers were right there beside each other. But now we see, for example, with cacao. Cacao is what is the crop that becomes chocolate. It's grown in one place. It's transformed into this substance we love in another place. Where is the terroir? I would argue that taste of place stretches long. And that can be an extraordinary thing if we allow it to be. So, you know, this sense that the milling is just as important as how we've grown it. It's it's how we've processed this grain into something that we can actually eat. And, you know, with industrialized milling, we are losing, we literally, they are pulling out nutrients and 
putting them back in. They are separating out, you know, the germ and 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 then re-enriching it. It makes no sense to separate the brain and the germ, except again, it makes the product standardized. It makes it look a certain way. It changes the color. I mean, there's so many ways that foods that are seasonal, that change from season to season and place to place are manipulated to look the same anywhere. So no matter which supermarket we went to in the world, we would recognize that loaf of bread. But you know, you go to a farmer's market, you see you're in India and bread is is a chapati, it's a roti, a flat wheat dark bread. You know, you go you go to the Middle East and that same flat bread is lighter in color. You know, we have beautiful challah from Israel. We have beautiful, you know, pan alavan from France. I mean that 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 all these things are bread, but they don't all look the same and they definitely don't all taste the same. You know, the yeast is different. The, the cultures are different. I mean, the extraordinary thing to me with bread is the long story and the ability, you know, what we use as the starter to, to, to set into motion the fermentation process of bread that has been so uh, compromised. Through, a compromise is perhaps not a kind enough word, but it's been very dramatically modified as you use the word modification before through this industrialized bread uh you know practice and i would say to take the time to to let the ferment be long to celebrate the idea of carrying that that bread starter from one generation to another from one place to another and to to recognize the value of these things is uh, I don't know. It's extraordinary, you know. And and I know I I grew up in a place where my mother, you know, in in the United States, but I'm of Indian origin. My mother would make me beautiful meals to take to school, but all I wanted was the pizza, you know, and the the terrible. I mean, it's horrific. I wouldn't even eat it now. The terrible cafeteria pizza, and I would throw away these gorgeous home made home homemade meals my mom would make for me. And now I realize, you know, when I go to a grocery and I can't recognize the things on shelves as food, you know, and then I go to the farmers markets and I'm like, here it is. Here are the farmers. Here is the story. Here's the deliciousness, and it's all right there. It's all right there for us. And you know, some people would argue, listen, for convenience sake, I I can't go. I can't do that. I have to go to Woolies. You know, and I would just say, again, we're shortchanging something in ourselves when we lose those relationships because there is something sacred and special in that connection. And that is what we lose when we walk through the grocery and we go to the self-checkout and we talk to no one and we pick up a bunch of foods and plastic wrappers and they came from somewhere, but really we just know they came from Woolies or Coles, you know, right. and, the, the, and that's the, it, you know, the, but that's, that's not it really. The creation of brands in the first place was to create some kind of a person or personality that would stand in for the original human relationship that we had with the people who provided some of the ingredients or some of the foods that were in our lives. So a brand is the replacement for that in the industrialized world because we don't have real relationships, real human relationships with the systems and the corporations that are largely creating the foods we eat. And very much so, this is true of bread. But to, as a point to your uh, comment about the beautiful range of breads from the flatbreads uh, of the Middle East and uh, India, right through to the f beautiful French baguette, the the those breads uh, have their impersonators as well showing up in the supermarket, yeah. and I think what it boils down to with them is that the ingredients 
are so damaged. The soil is damaged that they're being grown in. The soil is often dead that they're grown in. I know that uh, three, three minerals are generally pumped in, often in gas form, to just create that allow plant to grow that creates an illusion that it's a healthy plant when in fact it it's lost most of its natural mineral content and as you would state its natural local flavor as well as its nutrition so uh, we have to go all the way back I think to the soil and to and to every single ingredient and to the process of baking the bread modern breads in the supermarket aren't even aren't even raised the the raising of the dough is uh only once it's not raised twice in general it's a single raise uh process where it's chemically induced instead of through a natural yeast <laughs> it's a little depressing actually absolutely but and you know it's so interesting what was coming to mind when you were when you were describing this is we, you know, pumping, for example, you know, uh, bleaching, bleaching the flour, pumping our chickens, you know, that we find in the grocery full of saline. So it looks plumper than it is. And this makes me think of what we do to ourselves. You know, we're, we're plumping up our lips, we're pasting on fake eyelashes, we're, you know, we're enhancing our tits, we're lifting our faces, we're bleaching our skin. I mean, that this is, this is again, what, what we eat is a reflection of who we are and who we are is reflected in what we eat. So these things are not separate. And I think the phenomenon that we're seeing, you know, think about when you, when we talk about the starter, right, you were just saying this so beautifully about industrialized bread, you know, when we compromise the culture, so to speak, what, how are we compromising the bigger culture? You know, what is getting shortchanged or modified if we, if we don't want to really put any sort of pejorative reference on it, you know, but that, that things are changing. And I guess in the name of efficiency, in the name of recognition and standardization, it seems like we're losing the essence of who we are. I, I agree. I think we're also losing our taste for real foods. We've got generations of people who now actually prefer the synthetic tastes of synthetic foods simply because they've never really been exposed to real flavors. Strawberry is one that that springs to mind instantly because we know that modern humans prefer in general the taste of a synthetic strawberry flavoring over and above the taste of real strawberries because they're more familiar with the synthetic version so just reconnecting our taste buds alone is which a is a critical part of my book is talking about the senses talking about how every touch sound, the context, our history is who we are as like individuals, you know, what our moms ate all factors into how we experience a moment and how we experience a flavor and to understand kind of all the forces that are conspiring to make us love something, I think helps us understand and dissect what an influence marketing has on us, what the power of, you know, these uh, products, processed foods that are engineered for hyper palatability do to us. I think we need to embrace the uniqueness and the diversity that's there and recognize that sometimes it is, it is a bit scary to do that. It is a bit scary to step out of the comfort zones, but really we've lost so much of richness, of deliciousness, of, 
of history when we when we strip all of that away and that to return to ourselves is really to feast at our own tables to savor the deliciousness of the foods that are grown in the soil that we come from and to really you know embrace this diversity embrace this wildness and return to these delicious tastes and and start to if we've never had the experience before really discover them for the first time or in the instance of those of us who've been around for a while, rediscover and return to them. I think, Simran, there's an instinctive response when we do taste those traditional foods in their traditional forms. Almost always, certainly in my own experience, people who reconnect with that or who connect with it for the first time just cannot believe how luscious and how earthy and how real the flavors are compared to what they have become used to, which is a very bland impersonation of that. So I do believe that our instincts will allow this change, this healing process to take place because we know when we taste something good we're humans and somewhere in our genetic code our ancestor memories are uh, clicking online for us and saying yes we remember we remember this absolutely and what we remember is something joyful and delicious Simran I, I cannot thank you enough for this discussion it's just been a delight to talk to you thank you so much it's a pleasure to be here I'm Melody Patterson Meta. I'm Melody Patterson Meta. Is reinventing the supermarket. Is reinventing the supermarket.